Good morning. Uh, we had another wonderful week here at Calvary Monument Bible Church. I just want to remind you of Wednesday nights, some very exciting nights here at the church. I think you'll notice in your bulletin we, we've kind of started tracking the total number, number of folks that are here with us uh, on Wednesdays, and it's very exciting. We have Awana programs going on. We have a, a prayer meeting that goes on on Wednesday nights, women's Bible study, youth group. It's just awesome to see, and, and it's a thrilling night uh, every week on Wednesday evening here. I wanted to give you a family update this morning as well. As many of you know, uh, we're in the process of international adoption, and we've been talking about uh, travel dates, and our travel dates have been confirmed. We're actually going to be leaving November 9th to head to Haiti uh, for 15 days, and it'll be the first time uh, that we meet the boys that we will be adopting. Uh, we'll actually get to spend time with them each day that we are in Haiti, and so we're looking forward to that. Our hope uh, and our goal is we're able to take our computers with us, is that we're able to send you video updates during our time while we're down there so that we can keep in touch with you and have interaction with you. On the Sundays that we're not here, it'll be three Sundays. Pastor Stan, who was here in interim, has agreed to come back and fill those three Sundays for us. So he was very excited to do that. So Pastor Stan will be here uh, with us again for those three weeks that we will be going in November. And we look forward to sharing with you and continue, uh, continuing to share with you all the things that God is doing uh, as we walk through this journey of international adoption and we would just appreciate your prayer support uh, over this season as there's a lot of unknowns uh, that are going to be coming into our life within the next year. And so we just uh, thank you in advance uh, for your support and your prayer. A few years ago, uh, my family went on vacation where we go every year. We go up to a place in Clearfield County uh, in Kerwinsville. It's a mountain house that uh, my family has owned for a number of years and we spend a lot of time in the outdoors. And on one particular evening, while we were on vacation, we had a very, my son Brighton and I had a very unexpected encounter. So as typically is the habit in the evening, uh, we would get on the ATV up at the mountain house and we would travel around kind of the outskirts of the property up there. And I remember one night Brighton and I had jumped on the ATV and we had headed down off uh, on a path. And as we were traveling on the path, I saw in the field ahead of us, uh, probably about 100 yards in front of us, what I thought was a German shepherd. And so I thought, now surely, here we are in the middle of nowhere, uh, miles, you know, from, from a town. There's some neighbors, but they're kind of far away. And, and I'm thinking, surely uh, a German shepherd should not be running loose in the field back here. This is out of place. It's unexpected. And the next thing you know, we're driving, we get a little bit closer, and the German shepherd stands up on its hind legs. <laughs> and we come to see it's a bear. <laughs> And, and I will tell you, it was, it was a completely uh, unexpected encounter. Uh, we were kind of scared, right? I mean, a little excited, but kind of scared. I remember turning the ATV around thinking, now I got to get out. We got to get out of here because if this thing starts charging, I don't know what we're going to do. And so we turned off and we sped back home. We couldn't wait to tell everyone back home what we saw because seeing a bear uh, in the wild is not something that is common. It's, it's unexpected. It's something uh, that you're not ready for when it happens. Today, as we continue our study in the book of John, and we go to John chapter 4, we are going to see uh, an example of another unexpected encounter. And actually, over the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring Jesus' interaction 
with the woman at the well. And certainly this was not an unexpected encounter for Jesus, but for the woman at the well, it was an unexpected encounter. And as we've been studying the book of John, we've been studying it in light of the reason that it was written. And so our goal today as we come together is this, to see Jesus as the ever-satisfying and all-sufficient source of living water. And we'll accomplish this goal today by exploring this unexpected encounter that a Samaritan woman has with the Savior of the world. If you have your Bibles today, please turn to John chapter 4. And as you open your Bibles to John 4, would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, we we come together every week again with, with this anticipation that we know you desire to change our hearts. And you desire to change our minds in the way that we think through your word. Lord, we acknowledge the power of your word. We know this morning that it's living and it's active and that through your spirit it's powerful to accomplish that work in our lives. So Father, we pray this morning that we would come with hearts and eyes that are fixed on you and that you might change us, that we might leave here transformed by the testimony of what we hear this morning from John chapter 4. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And we're going to read the entire account. Uh, today we're going to specifically look at verses 1 to 15. And then next week we're going to look at verses 16 to 26. And so we're going to read verses 1 to 15 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can gaze down there. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea. And departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so we have uh, gone in the scriptures in John chapter 3, in the end of John chapter 3, from one water event, Jesus baptizing, and John baptizing to another event that involves water in this, in, in this interaction that Jesus has uh, with this woman at the well. And while last week we witnessed that Jesus' ministry was growing and increasing, we also saw that John's ministry of baptism was decreasing. And the word of Jesus' growing ministry was a cause of concern for the religious leaders and the Pharisees because they feared Jesus. 
And that was the reality. And, and, and sometimes as we look in our lives, we know the truth is that sometimes we fear things that we don't understand or we don't quite know about. And as ministries grow, oftentimes the scrutiny that surrounds them grows as well. And so the scrutiny was building against Jesus and his ministry. And the Pharisees were uncertain as to what was going on. And John's ministry was decreasing. And, and they were okay with John because he really hadn't been a threat to them. But Jesus, he had kind of presented to them as a threat. And they were nervous. They were worried. So Jesus is, is moving on. And while Jesus himself was not baptizing his disciples, they were growing in numbers and they were calling more and more and they were influencing more and more people to come and to be baptized and people were responding. And this heightened scrutiny, it causes Jesus to, to move away from the area. Perhaps so he would no longer have conflict with John's ministry, uh, but maybe also for a time to lighten the gaze of the Pharisees uh, that they had fixed upon him and the advanced scrutiny that they had given him. And so we find in this passage Jesus leaving Judea and departing once again for a region of Galilee. And while he traveled on about a three-day journey, he had occasion to pass through a polarizing location known as Samaria. Look down at your text in verse, uh, verses 4 uh, to 6. It says this in verse 4 to 6. And he had to pass through Samaria... So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now take notice in your text of the words, had to pass. He had to pass through Samaria. Something of a divine appointment was at work here. Now let's take a look uh, at our map. It's very helpful for us to see and to recognize where Jesus was and what he was doing. And so we'll take a look here if I can get this to work. If we remember last week in our passage, Jesus was right here in this area and now he's moving into an area uh, of Samaria. He had to pass through there. And you know, it reminds me that there are no interactions in our day-to-day -day lives that are not already appointed by God. And, you know, did you ever realize that? You've, do we ever think about the weight of that, uh, that statement and that truth? God has a purpose and a plan for every appointment that he causes to come in to our lives. And, you know, I find in my life that when I keep that perspective in mind... I think it's a lot more easier for me to relate to and relate with the difficult personalities that God brings into my life. Because I know there's a purpose for them and there's a plan for them and they're not there by accident. And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Samaria was a polarizing place for many, many reasons. Some of which held significant historical weight. There was generational animosity between the Sumerians uh, and the Judeans. And it was strong. And at the time it was only growing stronger. In fact, the, the Judean rabbis, they would have considered Samaria to be a city that they said that was in a state of perpetual uncleanness. That's what they called the area of Samaria. It's like a Hatfield and McCoy type drama and we find issues that stem all the way back 700 some years to the time of King Omri. The people at the time, 700 years before, who lived in Samaria, they were descendants of Manasseh and Ephraim. And King Omri, 
He bought a town of Samaria and had it fortified with a strong city. But during his reign, he allowed the worship of other gods and the infusion of idolatry into that Israel city. And eventually in 722 and 721 BC, the Lord uses the Assyrians to bring judgment upon the Israelites. And in 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18, we find the Assyrians are ransacking the city of Samaria and taking it captive. Many of the people who lived there were, were taken away and forced to serve as slaves in other locations. However, some were allowed to stay and work as slaves and laborers under Assyrian rule. And during that time, many Sumerians intermarried with Assyrians. And the false religion of the Assyrians influenced and crept in among the people. And the Jewish people would forever, even in Jesus' day, they would look at the city and the inhabitants of being impure in their Jewish ancestry. They even known them to be political rebels. They would sometimes label them. And they, they would be seen as people who chased after other gods. And you know, the Samaritans and the people of Samaria, they, they didn't help their own cause much either. These people would only accept the first five books of the Bible as being from God. And so the Sumerians only accepted Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They would accept no other books as being from God. They rejected Jerusalem. The Sumerians rejected Jerusalem as the capital city in favor of Mount Gerizim. And to make matters worse, in 400 BC, they erected their own temple of worship to compete with the temple that had been built in Jerusalem. So you can see these, these groups of people, there was division, there was animosity, even we might even say a, a hatred that was stemming. And it would only eventually become worse when about a hundred years before Jesus was born and came, a man named John Hyrcanus, the Hasmonean ruler of the Jews, destroyed the temple that the Sumerians had built on Mount Gerizim. And it was incredibly insulting to them. And all of this to say that there were some serious tensions that were built between these two groups of people. They did not like each other very much. And here's Jesus in verse 6. He's at the end of a three-day walking journey. And one might expect that he was weary. And he was. And he approaches the well and he finds occasion to rest. And though wearied, he was ready for the interaction that God had prepared for him. It's about noon in the day. And we can surmise that it's probably hot. Noontime in the day uh, in Samaria, it's probably very warm. And the one who is the giver of living water happens to find himself in close proximity to a well. And what we will discover here, as we have seen in previous chapters and verses throughout the book, of John is the superiority of Jesus over Judaism. Even a thirsty, hungry, and weary Jesus is far more satisfying than anything that Judaism could offer. And so the time of this divine appointment was upon him, and as he sits weary yet ready, a guest approaches him. Look down at verses 7 to 10 as we're introduced to this guest who comes to Jesus at the well. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now let's pause for a moment and consider the contrast between the divine appointment we see in John chapter 3 and this divine appointment that we see in John chapter 4. So as John chapter 3 opens, we meet Nicodemus. It says this, now there was a man of the Pharisees, right? And John chapter 4 reads, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Both of these are divine appointments. One had come in darkness seeking the light, right? Nicodemus, the man from the Pharisees. One had come in the light of day seeking water. One came seeking knowledge. One came to have a physical need met. Both Nicodemus and the woman at the well come alone. But both of them have the same true need. They both have the same need. Their need is not different. Yes, physically they may have different needs. They may be different people, but their need is the same. They both are in need of Jesus. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, a a man, a, a person viewed as one with strong moral character, a teacher, an influencer, one who would have expected to be addressed and acknowledged by Jesus when he came to him. The Samaritan, a woman, of ignoble character, perhaps even a castaway, that she would be coming to the well by herself, that would have been very unusual. Women would have traveled to the well together. This was not the case. One who would have never imagined that a Jewish male would even address or acknowledge her. Yet we find with Jesus that he is happy to address both in the same manner because he sees through them to the condition of their hearts. And because he's able to do that, he's also able to meet their deepest need. Ignoring the social and gender boundaries that would have divided them, Jesus has a simple request for the woman, doesn't he? Give me a drink. Give me a drink. Now, why why weren't the disciples able to provide this for him? Why, Why wasn't he able to ask them to provide it? Well, they had already gone off into the city to find lunch. You know, you get hungry at noon. I don't know how many of you in here do, but I get hungry at noon. It's time for lunch. It's time to eat. We've got to get something to eat. So Jesus sits. He's weary. His disciples go into town to get lunch. But it was not by accident, friends, that Jesus was alone with this woman. Not at all by accident. In this public location. It was exactly how, Jesus, how God intended it to be. And so we have Jesus, a Jewish man, interacting with this woman who's a Samaritan. The social norm would have been for both of them to stay quiet, to politely ignore one another, and to go about their business of hydration without any form of interaction. Jesus, however, is acting out of his very nature. And it's a nature that we find described in the book of Isaiah. Look at this passage. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders... And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. 
So part of the nature of Jesus is that he's the prince of peace. And as a peacemaker, he has the power to unite people who are very different and draw them together as one. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, talking in light of the church. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks. Some might say Jews or Sumerians, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. As the Prince of Peace, he also had the power to repair, to heal, and to bring us back into unity, not just with God, but with each other as well. There's a significant passage in the book of Ephesians, verses 11 through 22, and I won't read the whole passage to you. I'll start in verse 14. You can read what's on the screen uh, before if you'd like to, but in verse 14 it says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, And peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so in this interaction, friends, we see Jesus breaking down the dividing walls of hostility between what socially would have normally divided a Jewish man and a Sumerian woman. Those walls, they did not stand in the way of Jesus' ministry. And you know, I find in our culture today, there are many walls of hostility that are being built. Are there not? And there is so much division in our world and in our culture today. It seems that division is what sells, and so that's what we go for. Peacemaking is not honored. Friends, folks, in in our national media, we don't get excited about peace. It doesn't seem like, at least. I mean, maybe those of us in this congregation do. Maybe when we hear testimonies of peace, we get excited. But largely, we find these dividing walls being built between genders between race, between social status, between economic standing, between uh, politics. There's division everywhere we look. And the testimony of Jesus, friends, is that he's able to break down those walls and unite a diverse people who are very different. The followers of Christ, we should be the ones in our culture and communities that carry the torch of peace, that model unity, And celebrate the one who brings us together, Jesus. And what we find with Jesus is he has this ability um, to unite a people with enormously diverse perspectives and preferences. And that his ability to do that is far stronger than our culture's ability to try to divide us. The person who draws us together in unity is far more powerful than the social constructs in our culture which divide us. Yet we find in our 
passage in verse 9, the Samaritan woman reminds Jesus of her, their social boundaries, doesn't she? She says this to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She only wants to focus and emphasize on the things that divide them. That's not what Jesus was concerned about, though, in this interaction. Isn't it interesting that Jesus himself would later be called a Samaritan? Do any of you remember that passage, the Jews? Uh, it was John chapter 8, verse 48. And the Jews were very angry with Jesus. They were upset about him. And they said this. The Jews answered him in John 8, 48. And they say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And so this woman who saw all this division between herself and Jesus, it's interesting enough that the Jews and the Pharisees themselves would call Jesus a Samaritan. And in verse 10, as Jesus answers her, he focuses his attention on what she doesn't know or doesn't realize. If you only knew. And you know, as a Samaritan woman who was raised in Samaria, and she would have had an understanding of the five books of the law. She would have been taught Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy growing up in her culture and her community. And if she only knew, if she only realized the one that she was talking with was the one that would crush the serpent's head, how different would her perspective be? She should have known, right? If she would have remembered what she knew from Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Oreb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. If she only knew that there was a gift to be received, one that would be forever able to quench her real thirst, if she only knew, she would have asked him and he would have given her the living water. But the mystery had not yet sank in to the woman here at the well, had it? Like Nicodemus needing to figure out how he could literally be born again, trying to make order of the physical apart from the spiritual transportation, or transportation, spiritual transformation required to truly understand. She wants to go directly to the physical realities keep Jesus from giving her such a gift and she's thinking only of the physical while Jesus is communicating with her on a completely different level look down at verses 11 and 12 of John chapter 4 the woman said to him sir you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep it's living water are you greater than our father Jacob he gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. In the woman's mind, there are two physical realities that would have kept Jesus from being able to provide her or give her the type of water that he was offering. And the first is this. Jesus had nothing to draw that water with. He had nothing. Oh, I have to behave. I'm sorry. 
I have to behave. All right. Jesus had nothing to draw the water with. He had no physical tool to draw it. He didn't have a bucket, and she sees that. But the physical is of little value to Jesus. He has the water within his very own being. He doesn't need physical tools to draw it. We find in Scripture water and life connected so often. In him was life, and the life was the light of man, right? And her second concern is that the well is too deep. Look, you have nothing to get the water with, and this well, it's over 100 feet deep. How do you plan to get this water? But again, Jesus had means to provide her water that she knew nothing of. Her two questions in this passage, they follow her two concerns. Her first question, where will you get this living water? Where will you get it? If she only realized in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus had the power to provide her with the kind of water that she truly needed, the kind that she wasn't necessarily looking for. Her second question is a question like many we have seen in the book of John. We've seen many questions that are related to the identity of Jesus. Who are you? By whose power do you do this? She asks this question. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. And are you claiming to be greater than him? What she didn't realize is that Jacob was only for a time. Jesus was everlasting. A similar question was asked of Jesus in John chapter 8, 58. Some of you remember, they asked him, Are you greater than our father Abraham? In John chapter 8, 58. And what does, what's the resounding answer to that? It's the same answer to the woman at the well. Yes, yes, Jesus is greater, greater than any person we could ever imagine, greater than the greatest man and woman that we have ever known, greater than the greatest hero that we have ever been testified about. Friends, there's a lot of people that we look up to in our lives, a lot of people that we look at and we say, hey, it'd be really great if, if one day I could be like that person. That person has a lot of qualities and characteristics that I'd love to to be able to, to model in my life. But Jesus is far, far greater. And in this moment, the woman at the well finds herself caught up in comparing Jacob, he who was created, to Jesus, the creator. Standing at a well, a place where one goes to satisfy their thirst, she finds herself face to face with the creator of water itself. And she's comparing him to the builder of the well, which holds the water that God, through Jesus, had created. And so Jesus will now begin to reveal to the woman the true nature of the gift he is saying he's able to offer her. Look down at verses 13 to 15 of your text this morning. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water 
so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So as we look at verses 13 to 15, Jesus gives four specific realities regarding this gift of living water as he mentions it. And the first is this, Jesus gives the water. Jesus gives the water. The water is not something that, that can, sorry, not something that we can draw or provide for ourselves. It's a gift from God. It comes from Jesus. It does not come from within us. We don't have the capacity within us to produce and provide for ourselves this kind of water that Jesus is talking about. Because of God's great love for us, friends, he offers us this gift through the work of the Son on our behalf. And there's a second reality concerning this water in this text. The water is forever satisfying. He says, he who drinks of this water will never thirst again. It's forever satisfying. Water from Jacob's well, it would only satisfy until you had to come back and get more. It wasn't forever satisfying. Jesus was was able to provide a living water that could satisfy one's soul for eternity. Friends, this begs the question for those of us who have received this gift, the gift of eternal life, do our lives reflect this satisfaction? That we're forever satisfied by this gift that God's provided for us. And, and, and I want to I make note that there's a difference between being satisfied and being comfortable. Someone who is satisfied is not always necessarily comfortable. God is not calling for us to be comfort. He, he, in this passage, it's not, it's not what we're talking about. The satisfaction that we're talking about is recognizing that Jesus is is able to provide for our deepest needs far greater than anyone or anything else and being satisfied in his provision of our needs. Not wanting for more, not, not always feeling like we're needy or we're wanting, but being satisfied for what he's provided for us and given to us. One of my favorite authors, John Piper, he says this, and I quote him, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, end quote. God is most satisfied or glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And my question, friends, would be today, are you satisfied in God? Are you satisfied with Jesus and what he's done? He's accomplished our salvation. He's paid our debt on the cross. He's done everything to provide for our greatest need in life. He's called us into a relationship with him. In the culture and the world, they tell us that there's all different kinds of things that can satisfy us, don't they? I mean, we look around, we career, career success. We're told that all the time. Get a good job, have a good career. It'll be very satisfying to you. We're told popularity can be satisfying. Well, just Try to be like everyone else and be popular and you'll be okay. You'll be satisfied. It's all right. Social standing, we're told, can be a satisfying thing. We see this with social media. And I don't want to begrudge social media, but but friends, that's it's it's very dangerous that we don't find our satisfaction in the way that we present ourselves online. It's not that's not the kind of satisfaction that, that we need in our lives. Some people say winning is satisfying. Just win a lot. Get involved in something. Be as, and just win. And, and the more you win and the more success you have, the more satisfied you'll be. You know, uh, many of you in here know Tom Brady. 
And you know the story after he won, I think it was his second or third Super Bowl, and someone was interviewing, and he was talking about how the next morning he woke up with an incredible feeling of emptiness. Is this all there is? Because it's not satisfying. Because one day, those satisfactions run out. They may, be, they may provide joy for a time. They may provide satisfaction for a season. But one day, it goes away. And you don't feel that satisfaction or that joy anymore. Money, power. We could go on and on and on in all the ways the world tells us that we could be satisfied. But ultimately, our greatest satisfaction needs to be found in Jesus who meets our deepest need. And he is only able to satisfy us this way because he is the only one that can meet this great need that we have in our lives. There's nothing else that can meet that need, friends. We can't find it anywhere else. Israel, they're a perfect example in the Old Testament. God's placed them in there for us to look at as an example. They chased after all kinds of things looking to be satisfied. They chased after other gods. They chased after fame, success, power, a kingdom. They wanted a king. None of these things truly satisfied them, were truly what they needed. It says this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. This is God, the fountain of living waters. And have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Friends, all the satisfaction of the world is empty in light of the satisfaction we should find in Jesus. It's empty. And trading the all-satisfying fountain of living water, these people, the Israelites, and sometimes, friends, ourselves, myself included, we chase after other things that promise our satisfaction. That's only temporary. And the nature of the gift that Jesus is offering to this woman at the well is that He is able to satisfy us for eternity. Eternity. There's a third reality that he gives the woman. Third reality is that the water becomes a spring. It's self-replenishing in nature. You know, up in the mountains, I had talked earlier about going up to Clearfield. Near, Near the mountain house that we had in Clearfield, there is a spring not far from the house. And you can go all throughout the year, and that spring is consistently going. And this well, Jacob's well, it was fed by a spring that is very consistent and still in operation today. The water still flows into this well. It's self-replenishing in nature. But one day, as with everything else on earth, it'll stop. The well that Jesus promises, the water Jesus promises, becomes a spring that will consistently replenish our lives overflowing springing up over and over again we will have enough to drink the well will never run dry friends if you sit here tired weary worn down if you feel mistreated distressed anxious stressed out the water's enough for you the water is there for you it's self-replenishing for you to be satisfied in jesus and to completely quench your thirst. The final reality that Jesus shares regarding this gift is that it wells up to eternal life. It wells up to eternal life. What Jesus is talking about with this woman at the well, what he's talking about with this Samaritan woman, 
is a gift of eternal life, friends. And it's a gift that's eternally satisfying, it's eternally good, and it's eternally hopeful for us as we read this testimony today of this interaction. And we ask ourselves the question, as we often do, as we near the end of our studies, how should our lives look in light of these realities? And perhaps our response should follow the response of the Samaritan woman at the well. What does she say to him at the end? Sir, give me this water. Give me this water. Why? Why? Maybe so that she would not have to be weary from the daily travel to and from the well every day. Maybe that she didn't no longer have to drip sweat in the heat of the day to go and get this water. Maybe so that she didn't have to lug this heavy bucket back and forth from her house. The water you're offering, Jesus, sounds so much better than the water I'm getting from this well. And friends, those of us who are sitting here today, and we could say amen to what thankfully Jesus has shown us to be true. His water is much better and much more satisfying. And we must ask ourselves this question, are we living like it? Do we live like it? In our daily struggles, are we finding his water to be satisfying enough for us? You know, in, in my life, I have to be honest with you, if I'm just transparent and give a testimony of myself, I don't know if my focus is always there where it should be. Sometimes I probably feel like I'm not satisfied when I need to be satisfied. Sometimes I confuse comfort with satisfaction. You know, and, 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 and sometimes... Uh, to be honest, I probably chase after things that I shouldn't because in my mind, I'm not living and acting like I'm fully satisfied by the gift that Jesus has given me. And I think we have to be careful that in moments of stress, in moments of anxiety, when we're worrying, when we're doubting, when we're fearing, that we don't chase after these other things that only promise temporary satisfaction. But we go after the things of God and we trust in the promises of Jesus in the moments of hopelessness and helplessness that we face, are we finding his living water to be eternally hopeful for us? Would you pray with me? Father God, as we unpack this interaction of this woman who Jesus met at the well many, many years ago, Lord, our prayer is that we would be satisfied in you Lord, our prayer is that we would find your gift of eternal life to be eternally satisfying to us in our day-to-day -day walk. Lord, that we wouldn't want, that we wouldn't worry, but we would be satisfied in you. And that we would recognize that your ability to provide for us and to satisfy our souls is far greater than anything that this world has to offer us. Lord, I pray our lives might reflect that reality. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't chase after things that only provide temporary joy and temporary satisfaction. But Lord, that the orientation of our hearts and the orientation of our minds would be directed towards you and going after the things that please you and being satisfied in you so that God, you might be most glorified in us. Would you help us to do that? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
As we prepare to gather together again uh, next week, I want to give you kind of a heads up. We're going to continue in this study of the woman at the well, and we're going to witness how Jesus turns this interaction uh, to the woman, this interaction of the woman at the well, how he turns it into an opportunity to teach her and teach us about worship. And, and really, next week, it's very exciting. We get to, we get to explore Jesus' exposition of worship in John chapter 4, verses 16 to 26. So I'd invite you to come back and join us next week. As you go today, I leave you with this scripture from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 to 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. As you go today, might you find his water both satisfying and sufficient, and might you be thankful for having received this gift of eternal life in your life. Have a good day, and we'll see you next time.